Hello and welcome to another episode of Permitted with Conditions. I'm Sam the Intern, and let's get things started with part two of our interview with Joe Tovar. As I mentioned in my introduction, you, you were one of the original uh, members of the Growth Management Hearings Board, which today is a consolidated board. Uh, but back when, when you were appointed, uh, there were uh, several boards divided around the uh, the state based on region. And so just was kind of curious as a, you know, that being an initial court of competent jurisdiction that heard and decided some of the appeals on you know, whether growth plans in the early stages of growth management were compliant with the requirements. I obviously don't want to put you on the hot seat about any specific cases or anything like that, but I'm curious just what that experience was like for you having had the opportunity to work on uh, the Growth Management Act itself, and then having this opportunity as it's being implemented to, to weigh in on all of these kind of issues as jurisdictions, communities, environmental groups, builders, and everyone else kind of struggled to figure out, you know, within that legislative guidance, what does this mean and how does this actually then, you know, work? It was a very interesting 12 years. The legislature, when they created the growth boards process in uh, 1991, had a couple of models they could look at, one of which was Oregon. They looked at the Oregon process where appeals of city and county plans and regulations in Oregon went to something called the Land Use Board of Appeals, which is a single statewide appeals body made entirely up of lawyers. So it is a true land use court. I think our legislature borrowed some things from Oregon, but consciously did not want to borrow some things from Oregon, one of which was the idea of a single board. So they adopted a system with three boards, one for Central Puget Sound counties and cities, one for the rest of Western Washington, and a third one for Eastern Washington. So they wanted to have some regional diversity in the structure of the boards. They also didn't want to have all the members of the board be attorneys. Now, I'm not an attorney. Uh, the boards had to have, in, in our case, each board had to have at least one lawyer, one former local elected official. And then some people think the third person had to be a planner. Well, the statute does not say that. It just so happens I am a planner. But all three members have to have experience in land use, local government. So I was appointed to the board. Uh, the, the attorney member frequently, as you might expect from his experience and uh, background, had a perspective that was largely looking at what is the law say? What does the legislature intend? Looking at it from a very lawyerly point of view, uh, the former local officials that I worked with on the growth board frequently were focused on what is the political reality of what the legislature must be meaning and intending here? And to some extent, factoring in what can you realistically expect local elected officials to make of all this and to do if we're going to respond with a decision that requires them to take some action, I think the former local elected official probably had a deep insight into what might be a way they could react that would be compliant, in our view, uh, with the requirements of the law. As the planner, I listened to the lawyer. I listened to the former local elected official. We deliberated on all these cases and all these decisions, weighing the arguments that we had heard, trying to intuit what we think the intent of the legislature was in answering the question, did the city comply, did they not comply? Did the county comply, did they not comply? Why did they not comply? Well, we had the arguments from the attorneys for the for the petitioner and for the responding city or county in front of us. We had lots of good lawyerly legal argument saying, here's what it must mean, here's why we're compliant, or here's why they're not in compliance. We had to weigh all that, talk about that. So we had the legal perspective, we had the political perspective, we had the planning perspective, and each of these are not exclusive. I mean, I understand the law to the extent I think I needed to understand the law. I understand the politics. I worked for local elected officials for several decades. And so I think it was a really good balance of perspectives. 
we agreed on almost all our decisions. There were some dissents. Occasionally, somebody would disagree and say, well, I can't go along with the other two people. So here's my dissent and here's why. So that happened a couple of times. But overall, I think the process was, was very collaborative. It was very deliberative. It was interesting to me to listen to people argue about what the law meant or did not mean. And again, one thing I would have as a takeaway from my experience there is the law is not mysterious. I think you know people shouldn't think of the statutory language itself or even the briefs or most of the briefs filed by lawyers as some arcane, mysterious, secret language that only lawyers can understand. I mean, you strip out all the Latin, the supra, the, uh, the infra, get that all out of there. It's basically narrative that can be understood by most people. So I think that uh, it was an interesting process. It's a it's a administrative law process. These are uh, lawyers and non-lawyers saying, here's what we think the legislative intent is, where these blanks or these gaps exist in what the statute says. Uh, and that was really interesting for the first uh, 10 or 12 years that I was there, because these were, I think, as you said, David, cases of first impression. Somebody would say, what is urban growth? Okay, let's argue about that. And here's what we think it means. Uh, we then would make a decision, say, here's our rationale. A wins, B loses. People then could accept that, or they could appeal that and go off to Superior Court and ultimately on to the appellate courts to get a more definitive answer. But it was really interesting to me to, to listen to people give different perspectives on what they thought the law meant and why. And I'll talk a little bit about some of the cases uh, that we de decided and why I think uh, the answers that we gave to some of those cases made good law, good policy, and I think realistic politics. Yeah, thank you for that. I, you know, I just want to say, just in my experience, you know, I, I, I was kind of uh, in, in a couple of cases, part of uh, the, you know, group working with petitioners on, on some hearings board cases back in the day. And then also, you know, on the side of, you know, having some things that we had worked on on behalf of clients that got appealed uh, to the growth hearings board. And, and kind of really the two things that have always stuck out to me the most, I think were both very well articulated and defined by the board early on, was kind of the, you know, the importance and the strength of public participation in the process. And I know the, the board spent a lot of time in early decisions, you know, questioning whether there had been, uh, you know, a robust enough public process associated with things. Uh, but then also the show your work kind of standard. If you go back at at least my read of a lot of the old cases was, okay, that's, that's, that's great what you've, you've decided or what you believe the plan should be, but where's your, where's your support for that? Where's your record, your evidence? Where, where's the data? And, and I think that was, uh, to me, that was really profound. Uh, the board kind of, uh, you know, focusing in on some of those things, which is, you know, you have the some freedom and some flexibility to plan within the statute, but at the end of the day, you still also have to be able to have this this basis, this record by which that is defensible as a rational decision. And and so those two things have always kind of very prominently stood out to me uh, in, in my career, really guide me on a day to day basis and just how I think of the projects that, that we work on for clients and making sure that, you know, we're both trying to be, you know, engaging uh, to the public uh, as we go through the process, but also really to, to make sure we are clear, we are articulate, and we build a record of information that makes sense as to why these things fit within these plans and policies. But as a quick quick follow-up uh, to, to your experience on the, the hearings board, you know, to the extent you're comfortable, you know, sharing details and some of those sorts of things. Among the decisions that you worked on, is there, you know, one or two that kind of stand out for you as most foundationally important in those early days of GMA? I have more than one or two. I think I can cover four or five of them pretty quickly. 
You mentioned uh, show your work, which is something that the board said in one of the cases that was, I think, the very first case we had involving Kitsap County, City of Bremerton, and about 15 other petitioners uh, all filed an appeal of Kitsap County's comprehensive plan. We said many things in that in that decision, one of which was, you need to show your work. You need to explain how did you conclude the UGA should be this big? What's your data? What was your methodology? Show your work. You need to show your work to explain yourself. Totally apart from, is the work that you did compliant? I mean, that's a separate question. The other thing that we, I think, did in that case, which you know lives in either infamy or the opposite of infamy, is the whole question of well, what is urban density? The uh, some of the cases that were were reviewed by us in the '90s really went to the question of is uh, eight per units per acre urban? Is how about five per acre? How about two per acre? They were rooting around for well, what's the right number? Because the statute didn't tell you that. Even the wax didn't tell you that. So we, in our decision, said, well, clearly, if you've got a lot that is four units to the acre, generally speaking, I think we should have stayed with the word generally speaking, that's urban. I mean, if you want to contest that a city has adopted a density of four per acre and want to argue that that's not urban, that's going to be really hard to persuade us that that's the case. So I think right away, people seized on the fact that the term bright line was used in the decision where we said that the bright line of what is urban is four per acre not a hard line, not a brick wall, but a, a bright line that if you're at that level or above, you're clearly, you're urban. If you're below that, you know, show your work, make your case. We had a later case, Litowitz versus Federal Way, where Litowitz was pointing, rather the city of Federal Way, was pointing to the fact they had like a large wetland system, the high levels wetlands, many acres of wetlands that they didn't want to designate as four per acre. So they designated it at a much lower density and said, we think that's an appropriate urban density. What do you think? We agreed. We said, well, there are circumstances sometimes where less than four is the right urban density because the whole thing is in the city. So by definition, it's in a UGA. So that was a case where I think we illustrated by we, when we said, generally speaking, four per acre is urban, less than that could also be urban depending on the circumstances. People though li latched on to the use of the term bright line, which is a legal term, not a lawyer, didn't come from me. But we were trying to convey to people, hey, here's a clear indication in the law of how you can be guided by this. Well, that showed up in a, a Supreme Court decision several years later that actually wasn't a GMA case. But the Supreme Court at the time said, wait a minute, the Growth Hearings Board can't make a rule legislatively that applies statewide. You really are operating, should be operating more like a superior court where the two parties in front of you, A wins, B loses, go away. What you decided applies to A and B. It doesn't apply to anybody else. And don't cite to the superior court decision when you file another case. So we understood that, but it's interesting to me that I did work for PSRC a little bit later uh, and asked the question of all the cities of the region, what is your minimum lot size? What's your, what, what do you consider to be an appropriate urban density? 95% of them had landed on four per acre. A handful of them, three or four, said, wait a minute, we're gonna go lower than four per acre because we think that's also appropriate. Those were never litigated. We never really had to answer those, but generally speaking, a four per acre is like a major foundational idea that came out of that Bremerton case, even though the Supreme Court said the board didn't have the authority to make that as a rule applied broadly. The other thing that's kind of interesting looking back at it 30 years later, per acre is a quarter acre lot. Given what's going on now, that's a large lot. So everything is relative and perceptions and needs change over time. So Bremerton is one of them. Another one I'll name is Bainbridge Island. And I don't mean to, 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 to pick on them, but they did this twice. This is a public participation requirement. You have a duty to, to tell the people what you're considering to do. You have to give the public a chance to say what you think about that. You don't have to agree with them. Almost by definition, you can't agree with them because they don't agree with each other. 
But what we did say in the cases that we had from Bainbridge Island was you made a change after you had the recommendation from your planning commission and didn't give the public a chance to say what they thought about that. So it was appealed. We said, you have to go back to the wickets. You have to give a new notice, give people a chance to say what they think about that. And then you'll do what you do. So in that case, they did that. They opened up the hearing. They had a hearing. This person expressed their opinion. The city council respectfully said, thank you very much. And then they promptly did what they had done before. Well, when people said, well, you're just making them go through the wickets again. What's the point of that? Well, there was another case involving King County where the King County Council, for different reasons, did the same thing. They made a change after the record was closed. Nobody had a chance to, to comment. That was appealed, came to the board. So we said, citing, I think, this case from Bainbridge, look, you need to give people a chance to be heard. You don't have to agree with them, but you have to give them a chance to be heard. Well, in that case, they had a new process. They changed their mind. They did something different. So the point is, you need to listen to the public. You need to give them a chance to say what they want to say. That does not mean you have to agree with them. So that was uh, King County and Bainbridge cases. Other one I want to mention, uh, Linwood and Edmonds versus Snohomish County. This was a case where the cities were saying, hey, Snohomish County can't tell us how many people we have to plan for. This was an early 90s case. And the board looked at that and looked at the requirement for the county to adopt county planning policies that must be sized. UGAs must be sized for 20 years worth of growth, which inevitably meant they had to account for where is this going to go? So we construed, we interpreted, yes, they have the authority to assign population actually and employment targets to cities. So that was, everybody takes that for granted now, but that all flowed from that case. Uh, one other one I want to mention briefly is the transformation of local governance that we talked about in the Snoqualmie decision. It was Snoqualmie versus King County, very complicated case. It really dealt back to the roles of cities and counties. And what we concluded there was that the role of the county is to make regional policy, make population allocations. I think we even cited the Linwood decision. They have to have the authority to do this. It's a regional decision. 210 says they're regional governments, but they don't have the authority to tell a city specifically how you're going to do that. 210 uh, talks about the role of counties as regional policymakers, role of cities as the primary providers of urban services. CPPs, countywide planning policies, may not alter the land use powers of cities, another undefined term. So what does that mean? Well, in Snoqualmie, we concluded what that meant was development regulations. So they can't tell you that the population that we're allocating to you as a city, using our authority as a regional policymaker, has to be at the corner of X and Y with buildings of this density and this height. That's a land use power. That's the city's business. That's not the county's business. So we did some, again, role clarification. And the idea that a city is the place where a lot of those decisions should be made at the local level is what I think inspired a lot of the incorporations and annexations that we saw that I think were inspired by the Growth Management Act. I could talk about other cases, but let me stop there. No, that's awesome. I mean, I've been involved in so many different things and not, not just the planning perspective, like actual physical projects, but the planning projects that are kind of in advance of larger uh, projects. So, you know, your subarea plans and some of these other types of things. There, There's so much of that. I don't think people quite understand just the significance of hearings board decisions early in this process. I mean, even in the, the case of extension of utility infrastructure, you know, can a city extend utility infrastructure outside of city limits? Yes. Can it extend it outside of the, you know, uh, urban growth boundary? Well, yeah, but in the case of sewer, no. And then, you know, the you know other questions coming, you know, before the board of uh, can a jurisdiction withhold service until after annexation uh, because they want to have it annexed first so that it's built in accordance with city standards. I mean, you know, those are still kind of questions out there today. Mm -hmm as cities and counties struggle to deal with this, this infrastructure question. And really, if you go back to it, kind of how I see it, uh, you know, having at least some structure of growth management eliminated kind of 
what I would call the Wild West way of uh, of serving growth, which was, you know, you might have a couple of competitive jurisdictions or competitive water and sewer districts. And, you know, if a project came along, one may say, no, 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 we don't want to make an investment in extending our utilities that far. Yet the other one uh, may look at it and go, geez, you know, that might be really worth something to us someday if we extend our utility infrastructure that far. Yeah, absolutely. We're down. Let's do it. And those not necessarily being great planning decisions, but more decisions of, territory and power uh, and, and those sorts of things. So the role that the Growth Hearings Board has played in, in this profit planning, I think, is, has been very, you know, very important. And I think it's often a piece of the planning process, you know, because it's, it, it's part of the life cycle of planning, really, in, in growth management. And it's a process that most of the public probably doesn't know a lot about, nor really, talk, you know, has had anybody talk about uh, to explain kind of how some of these things have been shaped over time and, you know, how we've developed some of the, the ways of thinking about growth management that, that we now have. So appreciate you getting into, uh, you know, several of those cases, especially some of those early foundational cases. Thank you all so much for watching this episode. Be sure to subscribe and check out our previous and upcoming content and keep an eye out for future episodes from this series. I hope to see you again next time on Permitted with Conditions.